hormone harmony is not just a supplement for women going through perimenopause, menopause, or postmenopause. It's become a phenomenon. Women cannot stop talking about it on social media. A bottle of hormone harmony is sold every 24 seconds. Happy Mammoth, the company that created Hormone Harmony, is dedicated to making women's lives easier. That means using only science-backed ingredients that have been proven to work for women. They make no compromise when it comes to quality, and it shows. Hormone Harmony contains science-backed herbal extracts called adaptogens. Now, here's the beauty about adaptogens. They help the body adapt to any stressors, like chaotic hormonal changes that happen naturally throughout a woman's life. So, Hormone Harmony isn't just for menopause. Any women with symptoms of hormonal imbalances can take it, but it's perfect for those with those horrible menopause symptoms that put a woman's life on hold. Hot flashes and night sweats, racing thoughts and low moods, poor sleep and feeling tired all the time, occasional bloating and gas, no desire to be in bed next to someone if you know what I mean. Yeah, Hormone Harmony can help with all of these things. And the biggest benefit feeling like myself again. And that's what women mention over and over in the reviews. There are over 17,000 reviews for Hormone Harmony. For a limited time, you can get 15% off your entire first order at happymammoth.com. Just use our code, which is the acronym of the podcast, T-S-N-O-T-Y-A-W at checkout. That's the podcast acronym at checkout at happymammoth.com calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Hi there and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency. Hi everyone, we're taking a break over July as we rest up, recharge our batteries and come up with even more amazing content for you. We'll be back again in August, but in the meantime, we'll be playing some awesome episodes from our archives that you might not have heard yet or that you might need reminders about. We hope you have a wonderful July and we look forward to diving back in soon. Today's guest is an author, playwright, and screenwriter. His debut novel, A Star is Bored, is about an uptight celebrity assistant struggling to manage his eccentric movie star boss, inspired in part by the author's time as assistant to beloved actress Carrie Fisher. The New York Times book review hails it as wildly funny and irreverent, and People magazine raved funny, dishy, deeply affectionate, the Force is with him. He also wrote and co-stars in the play Tilda Swinton answers an ad on Craigslist, a comedy hit having sold out runs in New York, Los Angeles, San Francisco, London, and Edinburgh Fringe. He is a regional Emmy Award winner for his time as a TV news journalist. He's originally from New Orleans and lives in Palm Springs with his fiance, best-selling author Stephen Rowley, and their rescue dog, Tilda. 
It's my pleasure to welcome Byron Lane. Byron, it's so wonderful to have you on the show in just a few weeks after I chatted to Stephen. So to chat to both of you in one month is always an absolute joy. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm a huge fan of yours. I love your podcast. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you, Byron. Right. So let's dive in. You started off as a TV news journalist, and then you wrote plays, a web series, a feature film. Is that right? Could you take us through a bit of that evolution? of your career? Yeah. So I like to sum up the whole thing by saying that I'm a storyteller and I've always been a storyteller. And that was the essence of my life as a TV journalist. I was obsessed with uh, the local news when I was a kid and then went to college and studied uh, TV news. And during college, I would work at a local TV news station in New Orleans. So I would study all day and then I had a job working for the morning show. So I would go to work at this TV station in the middle of the night and uh, work from like midnight to seven and then rush home, take a quick shower, go to classes, that kind of thing. And I think that was the beginning of learning to tell a structured story where you're, uh, you hit the lead out of the gate, four people are dead in a fire, then you start feeding in the details and the backstory and that kind of thing. So I, I was a news writer for a while, and then I wanted to be on air. So I got a job as a TV reporter in central Louisiana. And there I started doing longer format stories. So those are called packages. That's when the anchor is like, and Byron Lane reports. And then you hear like a track and interviews are done and that kind of thing. That also was a uh, different way of telling a story and it had to be very concise and very catchy and you only had a very limited amount of time. And I remember when I was preparing those stories, you sort of had an idea going in of what what the story was about and what you wanted from the people you were interviewing. So if I was going to interview someone about someone who maybe died in a car crash, I had in my head that I would start the story off with them maybe being upset and describing the person. He was such a great guy. And then I would go into my track. So then I knew that the question to ask to get them to say he was such a great guy is, what was he like? So I would plot out this this thing. And sometimes it went well. Sometimes I, I had to create something that was uh, was different. But for the most part, I think those skills did lead me to eventually writing a novel where where you can kind of think to yourself, oh, what do I, what do I want these people to say? What has to happen here? So yeah, my, my background was in, in journalism. And then, then I worked in Vegas for a few years doing the same thing, working in the middle of the night as a live reporter, going from crime scene to crime scene, meeting all kinds of people. And it was basically an ambulance chasing situation. My photographer and I would listen to a police scanner and just uh, drive around all night until we found terrible things. That too was a learning experience where you met every kind of character you can imagine from police officers who were brand new to the force and just figuring it all out to like the grizzled and polished sheriff to the governor, you know, so it was all these, uh, all these characters who, again, just can live inside you and you bring with you to your, your other projects. And then after Vegas, I moved to LA because I had some friends who were out here and they got me a job working for the CBS affiliate out here. Uh, as a news writer. And uh, once I was out here, I was like, I want it all. I want, uh, so I started auditioning for, for different shows and I auditioned for this web series and uh, didn't get the part, but thought, you know what, I'll just write my own. So I wrote this web series and then someone saw it and said it should be a movie. And so uh, I did this movie with Octavia Spencer and Beth Grant. And then I, then I was like, well, I've done, I've done a web series. I've done a movie. Let's do a play. So I wrote a play called Tilda Swinton Answers an Ad on Craigslist. I had never written a play before, but I, I just tried my best. And then I would have friends come over and we would all read it. 
And if something landed, I kept it. And if it didn't land, I deleted it or revised it. And so it really was just a process of uh, elimination. And then, then I got a job working as assistant to Carrie Fisher, which was a life-changing experience. And uh, when Carrie died, I posted a little thing on Facebook about our time together and it got such a big response that I thought, well, maybe this is something, some work of art I can create. And Carrie used to say, take your broken heart and go make art. And so that's what I did. So I, I, I started writing and then it just, it just became bigger and bigger. And I, and I thought, well, this, is, this should be a, a novel. Let me see if I can do that. And that answers my question because I didn't know about the kind of ambulance chasing crime reporting you were doing. So it, to me, it would seem natural that the best fit would for you to have written some crime novel, you know, some hard boy. I don't know. I mean, was that something that you were never interested in? Is it is is that a genre you wouldn't want to write in or, or never say never? I wasn't uh, solving any crimes. I was uh, just reporting on the crimes. And so that that is interesting to me. But you know, the weird thing about it is um, that job was really hard. That was really hard. And when I look back at those years, those were hard years. So I was in my 20s. I looked really young on television. And uh, like I, I mentioned interviewing the governor and I interviewed the governor and he one time and he, he pinched my cheek and was like, you're like, you're what a cute kid, Sonny. And so I mean, it feels weird saying this now, but all that stuff was a little traumatizing. And because uh, all I really wanted to be was, I wanted to be really serious and I wanted to be, uh, you know, I wanted to be Tom Brokaw, but instead I was like Elijah Wood, you know? And uh, so so sometimes it's hard to, um, to take experiences like that and see them objectively as like good material for something. I've jotted down the things I can remember for there's a time when that all, uh, when I find a path for that, for telling that story. But mostly the things that interest me, Life Inside the Mind, my web series about having testicular cancer is really about a guy who's who's trying to uh, process how to be happy with this dilemma. And in A Star is Bored, it's a novel about a guy who's really trying to find a path to happiness through a very difficult job. And uh, so I tend to lean towards uh, less crime and flash and more of like heart and, uh, and that kind of thing. It seems like your art is very much influenced by your real life experiences. The testicular cancer, you've spoken very openly about, you know, your experience with that and your fight against it. And uh, you've also, you know, spoken so beautifully and eloquently about your relationship with Carrie Fisher, how you felt about her. And so the book to me, A Star is Bored, felt very much like a love letter to her. And when I speak to emerging writers who say they want to write something, but they're not sure what they want to write, and they kind of come up with these ideas that fizzle out and they write themselves into a corner or they just lose interest in the story completely. But I feel like if they pick something that they're really passionate about, like what you did, a person that you loved very much and an experience that was kind of like a crucible for you because I feel like so much of who you are was forged during that time. And so that's something that is just so rich to explore in a novel. Yes, 100%. You're absolutely right. I'm, thank you for recognizing the love that's in that novel and the love that I have for Carrie. And that's great advice you've given your um, the people you mentor, your students, because it's true, looking for that rich experience. And there were, for me, some stumbling blocks to writing about something that I had sort of lived. The book is just a, a shadow of that of that time. It's it's uh, much imagination, but but there there were parts that I had to go back and or, or that were hard to write because those were difficult times. And uh, and you do have to kind of train yourself to like 
take that hat off and uh, put your fiction writer hat on and uh, get the story told and get the story done. So there can be there can be some challenges, but you're right. It was a rich experience, and uh, that made that I, I hope that makes for a good read. It makes for a phenomenal read. It was one of my favorite books last year. I absolutely loved it. Oh, um, we, we're going to get to your process soon because I want to explore how it is that you go from you know being a journalist and a playwright and a screenwriter to suddenly finding your way into the process of writing a novel, like your your debut novel. How do you find a process when you don't know what your process is? But just before we get into that, something you've said now also stands out because many people write novels that are kind of inspired by their lives, but they feel this obligation to stick to what really happened, even though they're fictionalizing the story. And this is the amazing thing about a novel, is that it's fiction. And when things were kind of boring in real life, you don't have to stick with that. Or if things were so far-fetched in real life that they actually don't work in fiction because they just seem too far-fetched, one coincidence, too many, et cetera, et cetera, then you can fictionalize all of that. For you, where was the challenge in deciding what you would stay true to and what you would completely reinvent? What a great question. And that was a real challenge for me in writing A Star is Bored. And part of my process had to include, like I consider myself an expert at TV news. I haven't worked in TV news in years and years, but I won a couple of regional Emmys. And, but so I, so I was a real, that was my life. Writing a novel was not. So I can tell you what goes into a great voiceover and what goes into a great package, but I don't have that kind of 10,000 hours of novel writing. So I had to do a lot of like master class crash courses. And for me, that included like getting people like my partner, uh, Stephen Rowley, who uh, wrote Lily and the Octopus and the editor to look at drafts and guide me. I hired a couple of freelance editors to do the same and friends who were who were writers. So one of the notes that I got from, from one friend was what I had written. My first draft was really true to life. So which in, in real life, my experience with Carrie Fisher was uh, lovely. I was going through a dark time. I got this job. She was a, a ray of sunshine and full of color. And uh, I kind of grew out of it and, uh, and, and left to, to sort of try to live my own life instead of living someone else's. So I wrote that. And a friend of mine read that and said, uh, great, but not really a novel because it just went like this. It went flat. It was just a flat story. And for a novel, you, you want hills and valleys and you want texture and that kind of thing. And so part of the, the um, learning process for me was putting the whole thing up on a wall with post-it notes and index cards and all that stuff and moving chapters around and, and finding a way to inject some, I guess for lack of a better word, drama. Uh, into the story that in places maybe in real life where those didn't exist. What we all want in real life is this kind of life where we are all very emotionally stable and we highly evolved human beings and uh, nothing really phases us and everybody in our life is wonderful and there is none of that drama and that's great for real life but it makes the worst book because it's just so boring. It's true. And we want that for real life, but I'm not sure it is real life. We do get cancer and we do, um, someone steals our parking spot in the, in the parking lot of the grocery store. And, uh, and our boss is a, is, is a jerk sometimes, you know? So, um, 
So those things are real life. And sometimes for, for a novel, it is about mining that. And, and we do want, uh, for, for all of our art, you know, just when we think about pe- back in the day when I was about to talk about like Indiana Jones, like we, we want to watch a movie where things happen. He goes on a journey and I, I want the same in a, in a novel. But even way back when, when they didn't have televisions and it was just people talking by the campfire, it was the same, it's the same basic elements. You know, you want, you want to start, their world changes, there's an adventure, there's learning, and then there's some kind of uh, resolution, hopefully. Right. And definitely some kind of character arc, because who yep. the character is at the beginning of the novel should generally not be the same as who they are at the end of the novel. There should be some change and evolution in terms of a person's emotional, physical, spiritual journey that takes place. But something you said earlier is something that I really love, because there will be a lot of listeners out there who will go, oh, well, I've never worked for somebody like Carrie Fisher. I've never worked for a celebrity. So my story will not be that interesting. But like you said, the drama in life is in those in-between moments, whether it's a cancer diagnosis, whether it's your boss being a jerk, your main character in a star is bored, is just someone who's kind of lost, you know, who doesn't really know where their place in the world is. And they're just trying to find their way. But that is where the magic in a story can happen. It doesn't have to be a movie star. It is the drama in everyday life. And if we tell that in a rich way, and if we flesh that character out, and we make them believable, and someone that we can empathize with and relate to, then that makes a fabulous novel. You don't have to have these kind of huge themes or these movie star characters. That's right. And and even think about your day and how many times in a day you go, oh, because you spilled salad dressing on the counter or the dog is under your feet. I mean, these are all... Um, these are all little dramas. These are all character traits. And, you know, I think, I think we can relate to being, well, for me, you know, I was depressed when, before I, I started working for Carrie. And I think that's generally a, a universal, a thing people can universally relate to a period in their life where they were sad or aimless. And all of these things are, um, sometimes it just takes a minute to be friends with all of the elements of your own life, to be friends with, yeah, you know, sometimes they get sad or uh, yeah, sometimes they can't sleep at night. Well, what are the things that keep you up at night? Because that's great stuff, you know? And, and that's the stuff people, other people can relate to because emerging writers often say, well, this is my experience and it's boring and nobody's going to care about it. But what we seek more than anything in the world is connection, to find people who go through what we go through and who understand what we go through and to read something in a book and to say, oh my God, yes, I felt that. I went through that. I know exactly how this character is feeling. And so it feels like this author is speaking to me. So, you know, when you can put in those universal experiences, in your novel, that's what makes it so relatable. And that's what makes the character really, really come to life. We just registered my youngest kid for kindergarten. I cannot believe it. One of the tricky things about my kids being in French immersion school and not having French as a language myself is I'm honestly worried about how I'm going to assist with homework as they get bigger. They're young now, but I see it coming. We are honestly so lucky, though, to live in a city that's bilingual and we have bilingual friends and francophone friends. So I know it's going to be easy for our kids to pick it up. Me, on the other hand, I am worried about me. I grew up somewhere where French class was not taken seriously, and now I have to make up the difference. And that's where Rosetta Stone comes in. As the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app, 
it really immerses you in the language you want to learn. Rosetta Stone teaches through immersion, which is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues, and other practical language skills to fast track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're honestly getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language, which is what everybody wants. Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio, the audio from native speakers, and then give you feedback on how well you're pronunciating the words. So you can really hone those pronunciations. It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. This is the best language program because they have been an expert in the language learning field for 30 years and used by millions. Thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language training online. Of all the apps, Rosetta Stone uses the best speech recognition technology, so it compares your sound waves to those of a native speaker for better feedback to improve. They have a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent, which is built into the program. As you practice speaking, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. The other language learning apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one month language course. Think about the cost of one hour private tutoring sessions. With Rosetta Stone, you enjoy lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. We have a special offer for you guys. That's 50% off. That's a lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off. This is a steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the shit no one tells you about writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That We want you guys to go visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today, today. Did you know that 70% of all books are sold online via e-commerce? If you're an author wondering how you can get some of that market share, this is for you. Hi, I'm your co-host Carly Waters, and I'm here to tell you how writers can work on their author brand to build an audience and convert those followers into book buyers. Do you ever wonder why so many authors publish their books and later say they didn't sell as many copies as they wanted? It happens over and over, and it's all over social media. Authors really think it's a them problem, but not always. They really just weren't shown the way. And I don't want you guys to launch a book and show up at book events and have two people in the chairs. I have helped clients launch books to the bestseller list for over 15 years. I have now built a six-module, 10-hour course with all my knowledge, and that will give you the craft and book business information that you won't find anywhere else. And there's an app. Over 100 of you have already joined my new course. And writer Siobhan Moore said, I'm halfway through the course and grieving that I didn't have this information sooner. There's really nowhere else to find it. Worth every penny. Thank you, Siobhan. If you want all that info and everything that will change the course of your writing career, go to carlywaters.com slash course to learn more and use discount code POD15 for the month of April at checkout. That's POD, P-O-D 15 at checkout over at carlywaters.com slash course. So let's talk about your process. When you decided you were going to write this novel, how did you begin? Because for many emerging writers, this is the biggest obstacle. And I know tons of new writers who go, okay, I'm going to write a novel. And then they buy 20 books on novel writing and they sit down and they read all the theory. And then they take every masterclass to learn from the experts. And so it goes. And so it goes. And a year later, you say to them, how is your novel going? And they 
actually haven't written a word yet because they are learning all these things. And I feel like that procrastination is a fear of beginning because, you know, while we're still learning all the theory and jotting our notes, we haven't dived into it yet. And so this amazing idea in our head hasn't suddenly become crap on the page that isn't living up to our expectations. So take us through from when you decided to how you kind of dived into it. You're reminding me of this uh, sort of, it's some kind of parable or something that I heard once from one of my, I'm obsessed with self-help stuff. So one of my self-help people said, tell the story about someone was warned, uh, never go to Paris because it, when you're in Paris, uh, something, some, I, I see something terrible happening to you. So the guy says, okay, I'll never go to Paris. Then he says, well, actually I better, better never go to France. Uh, then he says, well, I better stay out of Europe completely. Well, I better stay, you know, and essentially he there's then he has no home. And so I always encourage people to go to Paris first, go to Paris first. So just write, just start, just start, just start writing. I immediately reminded of Fight Club, which, um, which is one of my, one of my favorite books. And, uh, that started as just one small short story that Chuck Palahniuk wrote for his writers group. And they were like, write more. Uh, my partner, Stephen Rowley, his his great novel, uh, Lily and the Octopus, he showed me some pages one day and was like, what do you think of this? And I was like, oh my God, this is like chapter one. Where, where, where's the rest? So so the big advice is go for it. Trust yourself. Tell this story. We all know how to tell a story. It's in our it's in our genes from the the sit around the campfire days. So so go for it. And uh, you know, structure and stuff. I had to learn how to how to how to do all that. And uh, I borrowed a lot from screenwriting because that is very simple. Three acts. Like you've got your your hero. Your hero his day changes. Something happens in his life. He makes a choice, and that launches it into part two. And part two is climbing up the stairs up to the the big moment. And then part three is he's learned something and uh, he's changed and, you know, he or she. And uh, so, so I just kept it really simple. And then I would give drafts to friends who are writers. Um, I hired two freelance um, editors who gave me lots of advice. And it was a lot of, for me, taping chapters to the wall and in some cases saying, uh, literally writing on, on the page, like uh, my main character's name was Charlie. Charlie wants blank. Charlie wants the job. Charlie wants uh, to get out of work on time. Charlie wants, and to make sure that each one, each chapter honed in on that subject. So that was a really uh, simple exercise for me that helped with with the structure. And and I and I actually went to old books that I loved. One of them was was Fight Club. And I googled how many words is Fight Club, and then how many chapters is Fight Club. And then I had a sense of, okay, so I have 30 chapters, I have this many words, so this many words per chapter, and I'm just going to start telling this story. And, uh, and you know, at the, at the end of the day, things need to be moved around and changed and some things expanded upon and some shortened, but it's not, um, you don't have to reinvent the wheel. That's the great news, that great minds have already invented the wheel. You just have to find what works for you and uh, and sit down and do it. Isn't that the hardest part, sitting down and doing it? Yeah, for me, the best part is always the idea stage. And I'm kind of at that stage now with my new novel and I'm printing off pictures and I'm drawing diagrams and I'm putting that all together. And I should be diving in, but I'm tiptoeing around it because this is the point where I can dream big and go, this is going to be the best thing ever. And then of course you do, you sit down and you start writing and it maybe isn't what you imagined, but you have got nothing until you sit down and start 
writing. And something that Claire Lombardo said in our last discussion, which I loved, is that she was just writing a whole bunch of vignettes, just a scene in which this character does this, and then a scene in which that character does that, without really worrying about how it all tied together and whether this was chapter one or whether this was chapter three. So when you sat down and wrote, did you have a whole bunch of scenes that you just wanted to get down on the page and then you were going to figure out later where they were going to go? Or did you plot it out and map it out and write it in the sequence in which it appears in the novel? I had some ideas for scenes because I had had some experiences with Carrie that I wanted to draw upon. So she and I saw the Northern Lights. She and I went on a gay cruise um, and she and I went dog sledding. So like those are three good examples of uh, of scenes. And I did I did basically write it from beginning to end. I just started where life with Carrie started, which was uh, at her front gate for a job interview, and then went for it and tried to just keep going, keep going, keep going, keep going every day. I I had a day job at the time. So it would be nights and weekends, um, forcing myself to sit down and work. Uh, There were some evenings where Steve was like, let's watch TV. And I just, what I was, what we were watching was not interesting to me. And it was more important for me to go and and work on the book. Uh, So I would excuse myself and go do that. So, or, or sometimes like hanging out with friends was, didn't, feel as important to me as working on the book. So, you know, there are some sacrifices that have to be made for for getting your, some sacrifices for your art, you know? And that's always the best time in the book is when what is happening in your head is more compelling than real life. That's when I know I'm in the zone, when I will happily give up day drinking, you know, champagne with friends on a Saturday afternoon picnic because I want to sit and talk to my imaginary friends. That's when you know it's all really happening. Yeah. And it's really, and it, and what you're describing is traveling. Like we are traveling out of our real life and into a magical other world. And, uh, and I think that that kind of excitement and lightning is, I mean, if it's exciting to you, that's probably exciting to others. Like keep going, keep going. And the chapters about like the dog sledding and all that, I, they did get shifted and moved. And while I was writing, I would see different color to different things. And once I learned that I needed to have hills and valleys, this character's art, then things got shifted and maybe a scene that that I wrote really funny uh, ended up being kind of sad. So I did have to be flexible in the end. But in the beginning, I really did just try to keep going. And I'm reminded of this, uh, a, another thing in self-help about people who are very serious about a, a plan. I need, I need to know, I need security. And we all want it. It's nothing wrong with that. But uh, it's never really a guarantee. And uh, in life, the more flexible we can be, the, the, easier, the easier obstacles are. And it's the same, I think, with writing your book. Like having a goal in mind is awesome, but being flexible to when you need to shift and pivot is uh, also is also really important and a big part of the process. Definitely. Did you have a word count goal or a weekly word count goal that you were work- working towards? Did you take however long you thought the novel must be and divide it into chunks and keep a tally? Or was that not really something that was keeping you on track? I knew it should be about 80,000 words. And so I just divided that by 30 and uh, got my word count 
per chapter and then would kind of work that way. I am not one who is big on like so many words a day. Steven, my partner, is is really good at that. I tend to, like I, I take a long walk every day and I, I took long walks at the time I was writing Stars Board. And so I would kind of structure things out in my head a lot while I was walking. So to me, another another thing I might say to, to someone who is writing their first novel is don't be too hard on yourself if part of your process is observing characters at the grocery store or going on a long walk and uh, and thinking about your scene. Those things are not excuses to to not sit down and, and transcribe all that stuff. But yeah, get, be, be gentle with yourself uh, in this process. Walks are great because when you walk, it looks like you are doing something. So while you're completely in your head thinking about these characters, you are actually doing something. Something I say to my students is you need to be firm about the time that you are writing because to your family, to other people in your life, it looks like you're just kind of sitting there staring at a blank screen. And so people feel like they can interrupt your time and uh, they don't take what you're doing that seriously. You're lucky because, you know, your partner is a writer, so they know exactly what the experience is like. So yeah, the walks is is definitely something I would suggest because I'm like you. I, I may not write every single day, but I'm certainly thinking about it all the time. My husband is actually terrified of me going to the bathroom to pee when we are watching a TV show or a movie because I swear to God I get my best ideas when I am peeing and that I I mean too much information absolutely but there is something about it and then I jump up and I run and I grab a notebook and I start or or I just go and sit down and my husband will sit an hour later and he's like she went to the bathroom where the hell is she so you know there are always going to be these kinds of triggers for us that just get the creativity going and that's definitely something you need to harness and I love what you said about getting experts in. So whether that's an editor, whether that's other writers to view your work, because I don't, well, I'm not going to say I don't believe polishing can happen without external critique. I'm sure there are authors who are able to do it. For me, I can't. Everything I write goes to my writing groups. They send me critique and I redraft based on that. And based on what you said, it was the same thing for you. Did you wait until you had a whole first draft before you had other people looking at it? Or was it kind of on a chapter by chapter basis? It wasn't chapter by chapter, but I wasn't finished. And I sent it to my first freelance editor and she had great notes. Uh, about uh, the story, about the arcs, uh, she would she would s- explain things that I didn't even know existed, and uh, that was part of my master class. That was part of me learning my ten thousand hours of what it means to write a novel. Well, for example, one thing uh, in in A Star Is Born, the main character Charlie, he, his mother had died, and when he was a kid, and uh, in the original draft, the mom was alive, and so my editor uh, was was really honing in on the mom stuff, and. I knew that that was a distraction. I wanted the I wanted uh, the character of Kathy, the movie star, to fill that role, and so I thought, oh, okay, well that that actually makes a lot of sense. If I remove the mom, I just am shifting all that stuff to the movie star, which is what I wanted to happen uh, for the novel. So, so yeah, you just that was something that I learned from getting getting an outside expert uh, point of view, and also that made Charlie's relationship with his father so much more interesting. When you take the mother out of the equation, there's one surviving parent, and there's kind of issues there that need to be explored. So that made their relationship so much more interesting as well. 
Well, so that book was two freelance editors. And since then, I've been obsessed with things like your podcast and reading like uh, Stephen King's book on writing. Chuck Palahniuk has recently uh, put out a book on writing called Consider This, which had two great uh, tips in there if you're if you're struggling for to find an ending or if things are slowing down. And those were um, where's your gun and where's your clock? Uh, the gun being where's the where's the threat? What are the stakes? And uh, what are, what's the timeline? So where's your clock? So those have, now I I look back and I think, wow, that's great advice that's going in my toolbox, you know? As we learn and grow as writers, we look back at the earlier stuff we've written and we would have written it so much more differently now based on our experience of writing. But, you know, that's part of the process. It's learning and growing. And I don't believe that any decent writer ever stops learning because something Stephen and I were also talking about is how you as a writer become attached to a certain point of view. You know, you like to write in the first person or you like to write in the third person or you like to write characters that are quite similar to yourself. And then in later novels, you decide to mix it up in terms of point of view or to write very, very different characters. Are you writing another novel, can I ask? Of course, ask anything you want. I do want to say real quick that I'm reminded of uh, uh, Stephen found a Joan Didion quote where someone was like, oh, do you still love, do you think you're brilliant? You know, and she's like, I look at some things and I think, oh, that's great. And I look at other things and think, whoops. So yeah, there is a sense of like constant uh, growth. And the truth is I I'm, I'm, hate to say I'm really proud of A Star is Born. I don't want to sound conceited, um, but, but I am I am proud of that for what I was able to create from where I started. But I do look back now after learning so much and I think, uh, oh, sure, there are things that I would have. It's the same with Joan Didion. There are parts where I'm like, whoops. There's something to be said for when we're learning, because I feel like we're much more vulnerable with our debut novels. Everything is so much more raw in a debut novel because you putting yourself out there, you're making yourself vulnerable and you're learning your craft. So um, for me, debut novels with authors is generally where where the magic happens. Yeah, and I want to say nothing is wasted, I don't think. And I think it's the same same with writing a book as as with life. Like every experience, there's something to be learned. Can we be friends with those things? Can I be friends with the the sentence I would have structured differently every now and then? And you know, can I be friends with the chapter that I have to throw away because it doesn't fit anymore? Maybe maybe you write about a character that you don't use in this book but you'll use in another one. Or maybe the, maybe the magical thing you're looking for is when you're writing chapter 30, my strongest advice is just keep going, keep going, trust yourself and, and tell your story. And then you can go back later and refine and, and that kind of wonderful. Okay. I interrupted you. Tell us about your current project. Well, I'm really excited about stars board coming out in paperback in June. So that's really my, my heart is in that, but yeah, I'm trying to write, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm writing a second novel now. Um, I haven't decided on a title yet and I'm still, uh, uh, working with an editor to, to polish, but it's essentially about a young man uh, in Louisiana in the 90s who is uh, closeted and obsessed with becoming president of his youth group to comedic ends uh, at the same time that his family is sort of imploding. So it's a little, a little running with scissors, a little election, uh, that kind of thing. So, um, so that's what I'm hatcheting out now. My wall is covered in index cards and post-it notes and scribblings and, um, you know, the usual process. Something you do so well, and it's also something that Stephen does well, it must be this magic in your household, is the, is balancing the heartbreak and the humor. Because in A Star is Bored, there were these hilarious moments, and then there were these really heart-wrenching kind of gut-punch moments as well. And I think one of my favorite scenes is... 
where are they when they're eating course yeah, after in course? In Japan, yeah. Tell us, tell us a bit about that scene. So Charlie and Kathy, um, a movie star and her assistant, uh, are staying at a fancy hotel in Japan, and the fancy chef at the hotel invites them for a uh, fancy dinner. But when they sit down, it's uh, it's delicacies of Japan, which are uh, not things that Kathy is used to eating. So like some living things and, you know, uh, she's just uh, unappetizing to her. And so she has to um, hide them in her, chooses when the, when the waitress steps out of the room to put them in her purse. And, uh, and then the <laughs> assistant has to deal with all of that later. And they just keep coming. These dishes just keep coming and the purse just keeps getting fuller and fuller of these uh living squirming uh items that are in i guess it's you know sort of spared you know um from their fate it was amazing because it was it was just it made me cringe to kind of imagine myself in the same situation because there's this etiquette that needs to be maintained and you don't want to insult this world-renowned chef but at the same time it's like you say something you're not used to and you know trying to save these these creatures but you can't really save them it was just comedic gold it was it was absolutely amazing when I was reading it I was thinking that it would make such an excellent scene in a play as well good eye yeah I would love to see that I would love to see that on stage or screen and that that happened to Carrie um I was not with her at the time she she was having this uh, magical dinner with a friend and uh when you're an assistant you're on the clock all the time and so there was an opportunity for her and her friend to go have this fancy dinner and I said I'm just going to stay here in the room and take a nap and that's what I did but she came back with her Prada purse filled with squids and stuff and uh at the time she was doing uh, Jenny Craig and so she had uh, these Jenny Craig cereal bags and those were in her purse filled and then the, and it was anyway I had to dump it out of the off of our balcony into like some fancy river <laughs> oh no that was that was amazing that was amazing well Byron it's been wonderful chatting to you about your process thank you so so much for so generously sharing the whole experience we wish you much uh, success with the second novel and for all of you please go out and get a stars board don't even wait for the paperback get it now uh, if you could leave us with any piece of advice for emerging writers, something, whether it's self-help, since since you, that's a genre that you enjoy, or whether it's just something from your own personal experience, what would you would you leave us with? Keep going. Those are my two big words. Keep going. You can do this and you have to write it. You can't edit anything if you haven't written it. Uh, write. Just do it. Go for it. Trust yourself. Keep going. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup 
for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on.